Remember the last time that you were so engaged in a hobby or maybe something in your work that you literally lost track of time? That state of being so absorbed in your present activity is called flow. On today's show, how to approach and even achieve leadership flow. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 264. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to help you develop your leadership skills. And thanks for tuning in again this week. Welcome back, or welcome to the first time to Coaching for Leaders. And if you have listened before, you may have heard me mention the book Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. It is a a very well-known book in the leadership field on how to create flow. And often the question when I talk with someone about that book is, well, what is flow? And so we're going to start with that today, but we're also going to look at how do we create flow in our leadership, which is something I've I've struggled with uh, throughout my career, and I would say uh, in very much the way I still struggle with in a lot of cases. And that's why I'm really glad to welcome our guest today, and our guest is Croft Edwards. Croft is a master certified coach who's been serving an array of clients from energy and mining to forestry and aviation since 2000. He's created performance management process courses and one-on-one coaching sessions with over 90 leaders of the largest platinum and palladium mining company in the Western Hemisphere. In addition, Croft has designed and facilitated training and coaching for the largest Native American utility. And he's also a retired U.S. Army officer and has over 18 years in the Army National Guard and Army Reserve. And Croft, one of the things I was really interested in in looking at your bio and when you and I talked originally was you have a master's degree in Civil War studies. Is that right? I do. I had gotten out of I was gotten out of active duty and I was really interested in this thing called leadership and there wasn't this was right at the beginning of the internet type stuff and found a program that was a masters of civil war studies and I really focused on leadership and command and oh, it was interesting. Awesome. My classes were stuff like I had a class just on Napoleon. I had a class on Grant and his lieutenants, Lee and his lieutenants. So it was just a great place to study leadership, very uh, practically and historically. We could probably spend an entire podcast show just on Civil War leadership because yeah. uh, there's so many stories. But um, I'm curious, what's what's one thing, looking back in those studies and what you see in the leaders you've worked with today, what's one perspective that was helpful in looking back into the leadership of the Civil War era that you found is still very relevant today? I think, and it's tied into, as we get into leadership flow, the, the premise of self-mastery. Uh, and, and there's just tons of stories of, of individual leaders. But if you look, using just looking at the union side, why were certain leaders or generals successful, others not? And it really came down to their work with themselves. How do they lead themselves so they could lead others? And so that, that's that been a common thing I've uh, theme I've observed. My first book that really got me hooked on leadership was an eight 
eight to nine hundred page autobiography of Omar Bradley, the World War II general, and it just piqued that question: Why was he successful and others not? And that that kind of has played throughout my my study and research as I've gone down this path. Well, that term you just mentioned, self mastery, is one we've talked about a lot on the show, and one of the reasons you and I connected so quickly when we first talked is the importance of that in leadership. And it, and it leads right into flow as well, too. And uh, before we get too much into flow, uh, for those who aren't familiar with the book flow and the work of Csikszentmihalyi, could you set the stage for us and, and just help us to appreciate what is flow and why should we care from a leadership standpoint? Sure. It, it goes back kind of the initial research is in the late 1800s where they started to look at what they called peak performance. And then Csikszentmihalyi in the early 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, somewhere in there, started doing a, a, a kind of a global study. And his, his question was kind of the, the meaning of life. What is happiness? You know, why, why are some people happy, others not? And in the research, what they found was that it didn't matter what somebody did, whether they were a rice farmer or an elite athlete, they found that those who had this state of, of ultimate performance where they were their best, they performed at their best, they described it as this flowy feeling of being in the zone, being in flow. And really what they realized was it was this state that of flow that that's kind of our, our meaning for life. And in flow, our body's producing all these chemicals. So in a sense, we're getting high ourselves off of whatever it is we're doing. And so we've all experienced flow at some time. It's that state where I'm into a project so much, I forget I even exist. I lose my ego. I lose, a tra- I lose track of time. Time either slows down or it speeds up, right? It's that time when it's a Saturday afternoon, you're doing what you love, and all of a sudden you realize it's getting dark. Mm. And so flow is that state where we are at our best. Csikszentmihalyi's work was very foundational. And then it's really evolved post 2000s. There's a project called the Flow Genome Project and an author named Stephen Kotler who wrote the book, The Rise of Superman. And what we're realizing is that flow, the study of flow is just jumping through the roof because we're able to study extreme athletes because of technology. We see GoPro cameras, we see all of that stuff. And if you take surfing, for instance, Kotler points out 20 years ago, the biggest wave surfers were covering was about 20 feet, and now they're approaching 50 to 70 to 80 feet waves, and what? just that ultimate performance. So that's the, the study of flow. Oh, so interesting. So, so the, the cutting-edge research on this, it sounds like, is actually looking at the top athletes and how they're, how they're tapping into this. What are we learning when we look at, at athletes and, and, and how that can help us from a leadership standpoint? Well, Kotler's really pointing out that it's really extreme athletes that, that are the cutting edge. It's the, the skateboarders, the skiers, the surfers, people we kind of think as the, the slackers in society. But what we're realizing is that they're pushing human, evo- you know, human performance, human evolution in a sense, farther and higher than anybody's ever done it. And so with that and then combined with technology, we're starting to learn what's happening in the body. And so there's actually a flow cycle that has to happen to create flow. And so if we want to create flow, we have to have struggle. So if you think about it as a kid, when you first learned to ride a bike, just getting on a bike was such a challenge. Yeah. That was the 
starting of the process. We have to have struggle. But imagine if every day all I did was ride my bike around the block like I did when I was six or seven. I'd get pretty bored with it. So we have to have struggle. And then the flow cycle looks at release, which is letting go. And we've all kind of known it. You're, you're in that moment. And you finally just quit thinking about it. You get into your body and you get into it, whatever it is. That's when flow starts to happen. And then we're realizing, or research is proving that the next phase, the last phase of the flow cycle is recovery. I have to have sleep. I have to be at my best, which ties into, we'll get into the self-mastery piece. It would be like me trying to run a marathon, but I don't ever work out. I don't, or I, I, I just lay on the couch all day. Yeah. That doesn't work. And the other extreme is all I did was run. Pretty soon my body would say, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, it's really interesting because when I was thinking about our conversation today, Croft, and leadership flow, I was thinking, and I suspect this is probably true for some in our audience too, that I I wish I could tell you that I've gotten to this point (laughs) in leadership or in business where I felt like a lot of the time... I, I felt like I was in flow and I'd figured all that out. And as, as, as many years as I've been involved in this field, I, I feel like I should be further along on that. And yet I find that the moments of flow seem to be still too far in between the, the moments of like, yeah. oh my gosh, I have to figure something out or there's chaos or something happened I didn't expect or I didn't, I'm not, I didn't master the skill yet. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering... How do you, in the context of, of flow, how do you help people navigate that and, and to start to trend more toward thinking about flow, but at the same time, handling the realistic realities of leadership? Well, that, that's a great question because my, my leadership training is really influenced by a field of study called ontology, which looks at how we show up as human. So we look at fundamentally three things, language, secondly, moods and emotions, and third, the body. And it's how all of these things interact, which determine how I quote unquote show up. So a lot of the the things we're doing is when I'm helping a leader to create leadership flow, it's based on their ability to practice being in flow, to practice. And you can do that by practicing effective conversations, by practicing effective moods and emotions, by practicing in our bodies how to show up. And this, this is very different than most kind of leadership development stuff where, okay, I'm going to go send you to a class and the expert is going to stand up in the front of the room and tell you here's the model and they're going to do it and you're going to write notes and you're going to go out and you're going to do it. Right. Very rarely works. But if we can actually practice, how do you show up? How do I make an effective request with somebody when that person has triggered me and I can't get past the fact that I don't want to work with them. So those are the places we have to start is we have to go back and look at how are you showing up because how you're showing up is going to determine whether you can create flow in yourself and create flow in others. And you've probably seen it where, you know, you have a situation and a leader shows up and all of a sudden, because how they show up, there's different results. People start to get, Back in the game, they start to go, hey, we can do this. Their attitude improves. Their morale improves. They stand a little straighter. They're doing better things. That's because a leader showed up that opened up that flow possibility. 
Oh, interesting. And so I'm, I'm curious if maybe uh, would it make sense for us to look at each one of these just from a, a tactical standpoint of what are some of the kinds of things you do when you're coaching someone or some things that our leaders could do around that? And, and I'm, uh, w- would that be helpful as far as... Great. Get, yeah, let's do that. Uh, so let's take language first. You mentioned language and just how, how, how leaders show up. And when you're working with someone, Croft, what's, what's the kind of thing you're getting them thinking about that gets them in their language to practice being in that, that state of flow? Yeah, so, so we look, if you think about language, most people think of language as descriptive. It describes what is. But the way we explore it is, is generative. It creates what is. So through research, you know, we've kind of got it down that there's fundamentally about six different speech acts that we can perform as humans. We do these speech acts in conversations. And for instance, one of them is a request. If I make a request of somebody, if I make an effective request, they're going to provide me what I want. That's a skill that can be practiced. But we've got to be aware that a request is more than just words because a request is a mood and emotion, right? So the difference between, Dave, will you help me with this? And, hey, Dave, would you be willing to help me with this? Right? And you probably could pick up the difference in the tone of my voice. Those are different moods. And so when a leader shows up and makes a request, but it's in a different mood, a mood of possibility, which, by the way, can be practiced, and a body that is open to the request. Right? If I'm fundamentally making a request, you as the performer have the ability to say no. And in fact, I want you to say no. Because I want to know that you're committed to the request. And if you're not, let's have a conversation of what would it take, Dave, for you to be committed to this. And so we can actually start with language. We can break it down. And so a lot of times I'm going into organizations. I'm just observing where are the conversations going? And are there effective requests being made? And if they're not, let's actually go and practice effective requests. So this is uh, making me think of two things. So one is just from a lens of, so there's one is what we are saying, our mindset when we say it, which obviously affects how it lands, which you just demonstrated beautifully. If you said the same thing, but you said it very different ways. And then body is, if I'm hearing you right, also part of just how we look and physically how we're showing up. And so that's that's one element of this. And then the the other element is, uh, well, I don't forgot the other element. Well, <laughs> there, okay. was, uh, there was something actually, else I was you were making me think of. But am I am I capturing those three well? Yes, but it's even deeper than that. Hmm, right? It's so? not just body language. We are we cannot separate. We are somatic beings. We are our somas, our bodies. Right? It's how we see the world. And so, you think about nature. I can't do what my system is not designed to do. So I can't fly. But I have a bird outside, it can fly. Its system is designed to do that. Our systems are designed no differently. So if you and I need to have an open conversation around what, would it, what it would really take, but my system's not designed that way. Mm. Because my history has taught me that, no, this is what it is, and I'm going to tell you, and you're going to listen. My body shows up that way. So it's even deeper than that. And there's a an emerging field called somatics, which I am honored and lucky to be a part of a, a great organization in California called the Strozzi Institute, that Richard Strozzi Heckler is a 
this is a guy who he has actually taught military leadership, lots of leadership stuff, but we practice leadership actually in a dojo format. We get on the mat and actually practice how we show up in our bodies. These are things which can be practiced in the body. Again, we're not brains on a stick, but most people are taught to be brains on a stick. And if you think about it, most organizations, moods and emotions are taboo, right? We tell people, take the emotions out of this. And I'm, per, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was what was, was getting me thinking earlier about that second thing is that the goal in what you described isn't to just get the outcome or get the person to say yes. The goal is to have a conversation and yes, get engagement if it's there, but if it's not to uncover that and a gasp, <laughs> talk about it when it's not yeah. there and to figure out where the disconnect is. And you're so right. I mean, that's something we just don't see in many organizations. Yeah. I, so it is through conversations, right? The conversations. An organization is simply a network of conversations. So I could take any plant, you know, that makes a widget. And the reason the widget comes out the other end is the people that go to that plant every day have conversations. But if I took, you know, if the plant had 100 people and I randomly took 100 different people and said, go, you run this plant. They can't have those same conversations, right? So they don't have the ability to do that. Well, leadership is no different. If I want to create effective conversations, I as a leader have to know how to have effective conversations. I have to be able to go ahead and show up as an opportunity for that person to have that conversation. And that's a skill that can be learned, can be practiced, but most people are blind to that phenomenon. When you're working with your clients, Croft, what's one thing that you find when people make a shift on that is helpful to them to start being open to that possibility and even that fear around engaging in some of those more difficult conversations? Well, that in itself is, is the first step is I have, to, I have to shift. But shift is not a, it's not a brain thing, right? We, we reward the brilliance of the brain. Shifts happen in the body. Right. So as a parent, I can, if my kids do something which triggers me, I get a body, I get fired up, I get angry. Right. In that moment, I can't have that conversation I really need to have with them. So the only way I can is to shift my body. So one of the most fundamental leadership practices is a skill that every person has been practicing every moment they're alive, which is to breathe. Right. But it's more than just breathing as I normally breathe. It's breathing to bring my body into it. If you look at flow, back to flow, what they find is in the flow states, in the moment where the Michael Jordans make the shots or the surfers riding the wave, in those moments, those people aren't agitated and riled up and breathing real heavy. They're actually breathing very calmly mm. because it's in that moment where I'm flow. So so one of the things we, I really start to challenge people on is how are you showing up in your bodies and we're going to start practicing. So we actually start one of the most fundamental practices I start with clients is the simple act of centering. Think about centering. Well, martial arts, yoga, Pilates, all of those, that's the basic place they start. Yeah. And, and I think for those of us who have, have ever taken a class or have done something with martial arts, we've, we've, gotten a little sense of that, 
But I know a lot of people haven't done that. And if for folks who don't appreciate the term centering, what would be what would be an example of how that would look like? What do you do with someone when they're not? They've never really um, explored that. What's a what's a starting point? Well, it could be simple breathing uh, exercises and techniques, and just one creating the awareness. Because one of the things that happens, many people in this. We're, we're taught these things growing up, right? If you take a baby and hold a baby, a baby is almost completely elastic, right? You can bend their arms here, there, boom, boom. Over time, they learn how to do what they do. But here's, here's the challenge with that is if I learn my whole life to repress emotions, I learn how to turn off the sensors in my body. And so I don't even know how to do it. So a lot of times the first step is just simply allowing someone, creating a space for somebody to, to start a new practice of allowing moods and emotions to influence, right? Moods and emotions are simply a predisposition to action. So if I can go, oh, when I'm angry, my, my, I want to get even. But if I can shift that and learn, oh, okay, why am I getting angry? Shift that and show up in a different mood. Now my desire and my goal could be to create fulfillment. Mm, Treat, like to create coordination. So we really start with some very simple practices because people can only start where they are. So if I'm coaching somebody that, that's very blind to that aspect, well, we start very, very basic. And it would be no different than, you know, if I'm coaching uh, somebody to play basketball, kind of the first question is, have you ever played basketball before? And if not, I've got to start with what is basketball. But if you've been doing it for your whole life and I'm a good coach, in basketball, now I can go, okay, you're doing your jump shot like this. I want to tweak this. I want to tweak that. So really, we start where people are to set that foundation. But a good reminder for us, all of us, is to take the time to figure out where people are because sometimes we make assumptions and we assume people have more skill or or less than than we know. And and it's, it's interesting what you're saying, Croft, because I read an article you wrote about putting on a leadership mask. And you had you'd talked about your journey as far as being a military officer and the family you grew up on, uh, grew up with, and and just how you had to make some shifts there as well too, is just far as how you showed up and responded to situations. Um, could you tell us something about just what you did as far as to become more effective at this and more agile in different situations? Yeah, so I I grew up. Uh, my parents divorced when I was about eight years old, so I moved with my mom. I was the man of the house. Went away to college, two thousand miles away went in the army a week after I graduated, all these things. And what I didn't realize was I actually had a somatic way. My body showed up a certain way. And that was, I would tense my jaw, my facial muscles were tense. And it was literally like putting on a mask and I I could put on armor and, and we're learning a lot about how the body does what it does. And literally what happens, I, I put armor in my chest. So my, my whole face and my chest area was ready to go, and whatever the challenge was, I'm going to attack it. And that served me well, and that's what one of the things we start to explore. It served me well. It wasn't a bad thing. The problem was when my daughter may stick her head in my office and say, hey, Dad, can you help me with this? My conditioned response was to put on my battle gear and say, no, I don't have time because i got to get focused. So I had to learn one how to shift my body and how to let go of that. So when my daughter came in the room, I could be the father I really wanted to be to her, which could take the time to look at her and say, I'd love to. How can I help? 
Mm. And that's a skill that I had to practice and I, and I don't always come through with it. So we all have these skills that we're good at because they've served us. The challenge becomes many times it's, you know, taking a, I've got, if all I have is a hammer, everything becomes a nail type thing. And so the self mastery becomes my ability to show up and in choice, I'm working on a project. My daughter comes in. I say, wait a second. She is my priority now. Yeah. yeah. And I can show up as open. Let's have a conversation. And I can even do that and say, sweetie, I'd love to do that. Can you give me 10 minutes to finish this? And then you'll have my full attention. Yeah. Whereas before I'd say, I'm busy. Leave me alone. Right. And, and that was a skill that I'd gotten good at, but it didn't serve me in all situations. Well, and this is so, I mean, it comes right back to what we were talking about as far as centering of just taking sometimes a few moments before walking into a room or walking into a meeting or changing context. Uh, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I noticed I wasn't doing so good at this craft with, you know, I'd walk out of business meetings a lot of time and then walk or, you know, drive right over and pick up our son from preschool. And I've got about between getting out of the car and getting to his classroom door, there's about 75 seconds of time. And I realized that I was using that time really poorly as I was still processing what was going on in the past meeting yeah. or the rest of the day. And I found that when I, when I really stepped out of the car and closed the door and took that 75 seconds to center myself and say, he does not care <laughs> what has happened yeah. or know yeah. or have any context for what's happened in my day, whether it was good or bad. Of what do I, how do I focus on what I'm about to step into in this next context? And I found that the same is really helpful in business meetings too. And when I do that, boy, do I show up differently in that f those first few seconds. And it makes a huge difference on the, on the connection that I make going into a room or into a conversation or an interview. And it's, it's just, it's profound. And there's a good chance your, your, your son picks up off on it anyway. Yeah. Kids are so perceptive and they realize, ooh, dad's in a bad mood. Stay away. Right? Kids are so good at this. <laughs> and you right? can't fool children. Like you can sort of right. learn to fool adults if you get good at it, but you can absolutely not fool children. Like they pick up on stuff right away. Yeah. And here's, here's the real challenge with that. Where did I learn my body from my father? Right. So this really came to fruition for me when I heard my oldest daughter look at her uh, little sister and say, Olivia, what part of no don't you understand? Mm. Well, guess where Sophie, the oldest child, learned it? She learned it from me. She was modeling my behaviors. This is how you act when somebody isn't listening, right? Yeah. Well, guess where I learned that, right? And it wasn't that my father was a bad person. He simply had a limited tool chest when it came to this gave me that tool chest and my choice as a leader was I can use the tools I've already got or I can add to the tool chest so that I have more tools and I can do. So now I'm very conscious of how my daughters interact because they're learning it from me. Yeah. And my employees are learning from me. You know, my, my, my favorite sayings is when I hear a leader say, you know, I have an open door, but nobody comes in. Right, I already know you don't have an open door because they've learned that you don't really have an office that I can come in and have a true conversation with because you're going to treat me however you treat me. So our employees and our teammates are always learning, this is how we want you to interact or this is how I expect you to interact. And so I treat them, you know, the old garbage in, garbage out. 
If I treat people like that, chances are, guess what I'm going to get? And I like the way you've used the analogy of the, the the toolbox, and I think about that as a lot too, because we all do get a certain number of tools, either from our parents, from our early in our careers, or leaders we've worked with, and we all get that choice of we just continue to use the same tools we've always had, which may work really well in some situations, um, or we can also add to our toolbox, and we get a lot more tools that we can use in different situations, and that's super helpful to us and working with a lot of different kinds of people and a lot of different kinds yeah. of customers that are showing up in most of our lives. And, you know, it, it, it also gets me thinking, Croft, speaking of different tools, one of the things I'm really interested in how you've, you've structured this, and when you and I talked originally, I know you've done, you've done coaching with people and I mentioned in your bio in, in the mining industry, and, and you've literally been, you know, I know, underground <laughs> in the mine, and you're working with leaders on helping them to be more effective. And I'm wondering in that kind of um, in that kind of a situation where it's I'm, I'm sure it's pretty tense, it's high stakes. There's a lot going on around. What is it? What are the kinds of things you find are helpful to people when there is a lot happening? When there's it's even in a dangerous environment. How do you help people center? How do you help people to to clear out some space in the midst of that? Because I suspect a lot of a lot of our audience also is challenged with that on a daily basis. Yeah, I think one of the, the places I, I try to start, and, and obviously I've spent a career in the military, but the, the Army Special Forces have a methodology called going native. And so what I v- work very hard at doing when I get to a client is I do everything I can to fit into their culture. And so one of the reasons I've, I've done very well at Mines is it's not if you were to go down underground, people wouldn't couldn't tell Croft isn't a miner. And I do that for, for many reasons. One is I think it's really fun. But two, it's to build the trust that I'm gonna walk with you in your shoes before I ask you to walk with me in my shoes. Mm. And that allows me to start to see, okay, where are they? I'm making an assessment of where are they? What are they open to right now? And I've had I've built a lot of trust underground in mines because there have been some nights when I'd show up to coach and, you know, it is literally one of those situations where it's chaotic, boom, boom, boom. And instead of, uh, you know, we really need to talk, I'll say, okay, what do you want me to do? And I've literally, you know, picked up a shovel, that kind of thing. And the supervisor and I got out shovels and we shoveled together. But what I was doing was finding out where they're from. And in there, that opened up the conversation because they could say, okay, Croft can walk with me. I'll start to share where I'm at. Uh, and so I, then I, that tells me, okay, I can open up this part of the, the toolbox or I can't open up that toolbox, but I really try to start where they are and try to be the coach they need me to be, not the coach that I want to be. Ah, oh, I love it. I love it. Because I think the tendency of a lot of coaches and leaders and consultants or whatever hat you're wearing is to show up, see a situation like that and say, oh, you know, it's not a good time or, uh, you know, you're, you're busy or it's, it's, you know, it's a crisis going on. And, 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 and like, that's the best time a lot of times for, for yeah. really having a real conversation is the tendency is sometimes to like set that aside of like, oh, this isn't a good time, but that's sometimes when the best work can be done. Yeah. Well, and that allows me, I, w- I always tell the higher level leaders, I want to see your people in their natural environment. So I want to be with them at, you know, eight hours into a shift when they're tired and all these things, because it goes back to even deeper than that, now I have an idea of, well, one of the reasons this leader may be struggling is they're set up to fail. So it tells me now my 
not only can I help coach them, but now I need to have a conversation with their bosses and challenge their bosses, but get into a place where I have to establish trust with their bosses also. So I, I try not to get into picking sides or this or that, but set the conditions where that coachee can go, you know, I really need to have this conversation with my boss. The boss, I can get them to where they're, you know what, I need to have a conversation with my team member and they do the work. So really it's a lot of it is just orchestrating and, and showing up in a manner where they forget that I'm their coach. I'm one of the team members and they start sharing what's going on and then I can kind of, okay, here's where a suggestion of where we can go. Croft, it's come up a bunch of times on the show before and both thinking about the skill of coaching and leadership of the the real necessity from a leadership standpoint of us to first understand and meet people where they are. And um, I mean, you've just given some great examples of that. And I think it's just such an important reminder for all of us from a leadership context, if we are willing to do that, of taking one step today in our work to stop take a step back, meet someone where they are really understand what they're dealing with, that that opens up the potential for a lot more to happen and, and, and trust, like you said, in order to then go a lot further with that conversation than we might otherwise do. Yeah. And I, I make the assessment that the most, and I, I tell this to almost every client, the most difficult person you're ever going to have to lead is yourself. Oh, for sure. So you, using your scenario it's not the other person that's my issue. The issue is I'm not accepting the other person where they are. Mm. I want them to be something they're not. Uh, I was in a conversation recently, and, and the, the upshot of the conversation was a person shared, this person is a blanking idiot. And so my response was, I get that. And let's just assume that's true. Then that's what you're dealing with. So why do you expect them to be something they're not? So if you want to work with that blanking idiot, you're going to have to figure out how to find out what you can do within the context of that relationship. Because right now, going in there and calling them a blanking idiot is, is, although it may seem like the best move right now, it's going to elicit uh, a response and action which may not be what you want. Indeed. Goes back to the first chapter of how to win friends and influence people. Don't criticize, condemn, or complain because you don't make a lot of yeah. friends by doing that. And no one wants to be told that they're, you know, they're the problem and that they're not handling it well. So it's just, uh, it, it's, it's all about how it starts with us though, how we approach it, how we frame yeah. that conversation. Croft, this is, this has been fabulous. I, I, I know you've given us a lot to think about and walking into conversations today that the the people listening are are thinking about as far as difficult situations and understanding where other people are coming from. I know this will will get people thinking about how to center themselves and how to approach that differently. For those who who want to uh, learn more about your work, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Well, you can learn about my company at croftandcompany.com. That's C-R-O-F-T-A-N-D-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y.com. I'm very active on Twitter at Croft Edwards. Follow me. I, I'm a fan of following people back because that opens up conversations. Direct message me. Send me a, a you know tweet to me. Also on LinkedIn, you can look up Croft Edwards. I the great thing about having the name Croft is I'm pretty much the only one. So <laughs> not a lot nice. of other Croft Edwards. So connect with me. But I, I'm it's interesting. I'm in a conversation right now on LinkedIn with a, a pastor that we've just started a conversation about. He had some questions, and it's led to a very 
fun and fruitful conversation. So I love conversations and uh, just find me. I, I should be pretty easy to find on the internet. Sounds great. Well, Croft, thanks so much for your time. And I appreciate your thoughts on flow and how we can uh, we can center ourselves in order to tap into it more effectively. And uh, I know it'll it'll have me thinking differently about how I approach every interaction the rest of the day today. So thanks a ton for that. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Dave. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Croft. And I love his message about that centering moment. Gosh, it's great advice going into the next conversation. And I hope that you'll also check out all of the other key points from today's conversation and the resources mentioned on the show notes or in the weekly leadership guide. That's actually the best way to get access to the things that I mention with guests on every episode. And the best way to access that is go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. You will get each episode show notes and also my handpicked resources for leadership in your inbox each Wednesday. The show notes are at the top. Leadership resources are at the bottom. I, I find the best articles other podcasts, videos, things that I think will help support you in your leadership development between the weekly episodes. And also when you join, you'll get access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you to get better results from others. So it's a great place to begin your reading and your professional development around leadership. Even reading one or two of those books this year will get you moving on your journey in becoming a more effective leader. So again, that's at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe to get access to all that, including a video from me going through the books, why I think they're helpful to you. And so hopefully you check that out. In addition, uh, today's episode and the conversation with Crofts really reminded me about the the importance, the critical importance for each of us in self-mastery and leading ourselves well first. And there's three past episodes that I think would also be really helpful to you if that's top of mind for you right now. Episode 204 that I aired last year was with Amy Morin, and that episode was titled Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. It's based on Amy's book, of almost the same title. Amy and I talk in that episode about uh, just her life experience, both professionally and personally. She lost her husband and she also lost another family member and just how she dealt with that on both a personal level and a professional level and became more mentally strong through that journey. It's a really powerful conversation and story. And one of our mastermind members took her model and was going through one of those points every week uh, during the year in order to center herself and become more mentally strong. So again, that's episode 204 uh, if you haven't listened to it. And episode 218 will also be helpful to you. We hear a lot in the world about how we get, we need to break out of our comfort zones. And uh, we actually, in episode 218, my friend Beth Bilo and I had a conversation about how to increase your capacity zone. So not just how to make yourself uncomfortable, but how to actually build your capacity for which you can handle in a daily, weekly, monthly basis, but to do it in a way that really honors who you are. So again, that's episode 218. And then finally, episode 232 that I aired earlier this year with Tara Moore is on how to manage your inner critic. If you, like me, find that your inner critic is talking to you a lot and maybe even yelling at you at occasion, I would really recommend listening to that. She does a masterful job 
of talking about how to manage your inner critic, how to how to give you the language in order to uh, start to think about that differently and just have the right mindset in order to do that effectively. And again, that's episode 232. The way to get to all the past episodes, coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number will get you there. And Bonnie and I return next week for our monthly Q&A show. So you can submit your question for consideration for next week or the first uh question answer show on the first Monday of every month. Uh, We do that each month. And if you have a question of something you've been thinking about in relation to leadership, or maybe it's something we've talked about in a previous episode or previous Q&A show, we would love to get your question. The best way to get it to us is to go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That'll uh, get you uh, an opportunity to submit the question so we can consider it. I hope you'll do that. Have a fabulous week and I look forward to seeing you next week here with Bonnie. Take care.